Titus chapter 1, our topic, <clears throat> Modern Evangelicalism's Perversion of the Gospel, a Biblical Analysis. Modern Evangelicalism's Perversion of the Gospel, a Biblical Analysis. And I'm going to read from Titus 1, beginning at verse uh, 9. I'll be, no, verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things that they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. We live in a time where one could watch what is called, it's called Christian television, I don't know if I would call it Christian television, uh, for over a month and learn virtually nothing about the true gospel. <clears throat> Now, I'm not talking about somebody like John MacArthur. I, I think he's on TV. I've never seen him. Well, I think I saw him on TV once. Or somebody like R.C. Sproul. I'm talking about your typical, charismatic, megachurch pastor. <clears throat> so you could hear, you learn absolutely nothing about the true gospel as it is presented in Scripture. Uh, when I was first a professing Christian, I was a uh, charismatic, because that's just who I met, and I just thought everybody was a charismatic, and I'd never met anybody else. And uh, I went to a church for a couple of years. I didn't know anything about justification by faith. I didn't know anything about the atonement. I didn't know anything about crucial doctrines relating to salvation at all. Because I was never taught anything about that. <clears throat> well, there are certainly exceptions. You know, like I said, Mark, John MacArthur. Most modern evangelical preachers are not really evangelical in the biblical sense of the term. They have departed, now originally the term evangelical kind of referred to the Lutherans and reform, they had the reform, which are the Calvinists. Now evangelical is a very general term, which is inclusive of anybody who's not a liberal who says they believe in the Bible. So it includes the Assemblies of God, Charismatics, Pentecostals, you name it. So it's a very general term. They have very, departed very far from the biblical, uh, spiritual attainments of the Protestant Reformation. Very few professing Christians today understand crucial doctrines such as vicarious atonement, justification by faith alone, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, and so on. The great doctrines of grace that thundered from Wittenberg, Geneva, and Scotland have been largely replaced with a humanistic, man-centered, antinomian, hedonistic, Arminian substitute that caters to our self-centered, hedonistic, humanistic culture. For example, Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Price, you name it. Myers, that woman, has nothing to do with the Bible. It's, their teachings are totally false. After hours of crass entertainment and shallow non-exegetical preaching, people are told to accept Jesus as their personal Savior. 
Come down to the front of the church. Accept Jesus into your heart, and you're a Christian. And don't ever doubt it again. Let Christ come and dwell in your heart. Instead of faith in the perfect objective work of Christ and his person as defined by Scripture, salvation is presented as something we sovereignly accept, as if we are letting Jesus save us. And I remember when I was an Armenian attending charismatic churches, and I would hear sermons like this. Jesus has died on the cross. He's up in heaven. He's waiting for you to accept him. He's done everything he's going to do. Now it's up to you to accept him. He can't save you unless you let him. It's essentially that doctrine. Of course, ignoring the fact that the atonement uh, is the power behind regeneration and the ability to believe, but we'll look at that in a moment. Instead of holding to God's sovereign grace and justification to something objective that takes place outside the sinner, salvation is presented as a subjective experience. Ask him to come in. You'll have a fulfilled life. You'll have a better life. You'll be happy. And if you have 10,000 people or 50,000 people in your church, you get to go on Oprah Winfrey. We are told that we are saved by asking Jesus to come within us. Evangelicals are unaware that their concept of the gospel and how they present it has more in common with Romanism, Roman Catholicism, Papalism, than historic Orthodox Protestantism. And part of the problem is that doctrine is no longer considered important many, in many circles. Preaching is non-doctrinal. In fact, to be doctrinal is considered bad nowadays. And it's non-exegetical. In other words, they don't follow the text of Scripture. Uh, they get up there and they shoot their mouth off and they crack a lot of jokes and tell dead dog stories and very limited reference to Scripture. Doctrine is even viewed negatively as something that impedes church growth and divides the church. The assumption in here is that unity and growth is more important than truth and precision, which is an odd and absurd thing to say, given the fact that Paul was obsessed in his epistles to refute errors arising among professing Christians and was exceptionally detailed, precise, and dogmatic regarding the doctrine that defines biblical Christianity. Read the book of Romans. Read the book of Hebrews. Read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Corinthians. Read First and Second Timothy and Titus. Don't tell me that Paul was not doctrinal. Don't tell me that Paul uh, was more concerned about a superficial unity than truth. He was obsessed with doctrine, and his epistles are exceptionally doctrinal. Romans, for example, is just mind-boggling how doctrinal it is. Yet we're told that that's a bad idea. Imitating Paul is a bad idea. We should instead imitate Norman Vincent Peale. <clears throat> Paul 
Paul issued a double curse in the book of Galatians against anyone who perverted the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. He stood up and rebuked the apostle Peter publicly to his face when Peter acted inconsistent with the true gospel of God's sovereign grace. Peter, the most prominent of the apostles, was being inconsistent with the gospel in his behavior, and he was rebuked publicly. Of course, Peter submitted to that. David F. Wells, in a careful scholarly assessment of modern evangelicalism, wrote this, <coughs> quote, Evangelicals, no less than the liberals before them, whom they have always berated, have now abandoned doctrine in favor of life. For evangelicals today, this life is also, in essence, detached from a cognitive structure, a detachment made necessary by the external modern world which is, in which it is no... It no longer, it is no longer uh, has a viable place, and it really does not require a theological view of life. Evangelicals today only have to believe that God can work dramatically within the narrow fissure of internal experience. They have lost interest, or perhaps they can no longer sustain interest, in what the doctrines of creation, common grace, and providence once meant for believers. Even in those doctrines that articulate Christ's death, such as justification, redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation, it is enough for them to simply know that Christ somehow died for people. End of quote. And he's absolutely correct. People are not only non-doctrinal today, that's bad enough, but they're trained that doctrine is not a good idea, and that we're not responsible to learn doctrine. And that being too doctrinal is divisive and a bad thing. And then when heresies abound in the church and immorality abounds in the church, they act surprised. Well, they shouldn't be. The importance and necessity of Christian doctrine being detailed, precise, accurate, and free of cultural and humanistic influence is also easily demonstrated by the fact that a Roman Catholic an Eastern Orthodox, or you know, like a Greek or Russian Orthodox, or Ukrainian Orthodox, and even a Hindu or Eastern mystic could have no problem accepting Jesus into their heart. But not one of them could or would profess that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. Or in the case of a Hindu, uh, meditative techniques. Now, I remember when I was a charismatic, and, and the charismatic churches, this was in San Jose, California, and they were, uh, this is the 70s, and the charismatics, the Assemblies of God, and the various charismatic groups were having united services with Roman Catholic charismatics. And they could all agree about accepting Jesus into the heart, that salvation was a subjective experience. But that's not Protestantism, that's Romanism. Now, yes, salvation is objective, and once you're saved, you're sanctified, which is subjective. But that's not what they're teaching. They're, te they're teaching a, a system of salvation in line with Roman Catholicism. In order to understand the situation among modern evangelicalism regarding the gospel, and, and generally speaking, once again, there, there are some wonderful uh, evangelicals. MacArthur is probably the most prominent. 
we need to look at the various theological trends that have contributed to the theological problems today, and there are a number of heretical influences on modern churches. First, and this is certainly the worst, during the 19th and 20th centuries, semi-Pelagianism or Arminianism has come to dominate Protestant Christianity. Now, Pelagius was a, uh, a monk in the ancient church, the post-apostolic church, who taught, he rejected that the fall of Adam, uh, that original sin, was uh, affected other human beings, that we're all born like a blank slate, and that we only sin because we become sinners, and that at, we don't have the depravity or the uh, inherent sin of Adam. And then the Roman Catholic Church, well, the ancient church condemned that, but then soon arose semi-Pelagianism, which is the idea of, yeah, we're affected by the fall of Adam, but we're not really dead in trespasses and sins. We're just sick, and we can cooperate with grace of our own free will. Okay, that's semi-Pelagianism. And then Arminianism has come to dominate Protestant Christianity. Arminianism is, is identical to semi-Pelagianism. What one largely calls Arminianism today has a number of teachings that are diametrically opposed to the biblical doctrine of salvation. Let's briefly examine each one to notice detrimental, uh, detrimental effects. Number one. Arminianism teaches that all men are fallen in Adam and have an innate, inherent, hereditary corruption. But the Arminian does not believe that this corruption renders men unable to see or perceive spiritual truth or respond to the gospel. We are told that men are spiritually sick, but they're not dead. They still have a free will and they still have the ability to cooperate with grace apart from a prior work of grace. That men have a free or unencumbered will in spiritual matters and can of their own free will cooperate with grace. Now, the particular brand of Arminianism, the word Arminius refers to a controversy that happened in the Netherlands, and you had the five points of Arminianism, which were counteracted by the five points of Calvinism, we won't get into that, but it's, it's, it's dominated modern evangelicalism. <clears throat> the particular brand developed by John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, John, uh, George Whitfield was a Calvinist, Wesley was an Arminian, argued that due to the fall, all men are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, and spiritually enabled to perceive spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and John 3, 3. So they had a biblical view of the fall, but they taught that due to the death of Christ, which they taught was for all men without exception, even those who go to hell, man's total depravity has been modified, so now everyone has a free will and can cooperate with grace. So that's a unique form of Arminianism taught by John Wesley and the Methodist Church. Now, modern Methodists probably have no idea anything about that. Modern Methodists are mostly liberal. Because man has a free will in spiritual matters, we are told that God is not sovereign over salvation, but man is. There's even a, there was even a tract that I, I, used, I saw back in the 70s. You know, God has made his vote, Christ has made his vote, Satan has made his vote, now how are you going to vote? Are you going to side with Christ or God? According to this view, Jesus died for the sins of all men without exception, even those who God knows will go to hell. And God is now waiting, Jesus is now up in heaven waiting to see who will choose him as their savior. This means that the autonomous act of sinful man plays the decisive role 
in a person's salvation. The primary role, because they teach an unlimited atonement, they teach a universal atonement. Christ died for Judas, Christ died for Hitler, Christ died for everyone who ever lived, even the millions of people in hell. So what makes the difference? Well, the difference is your free will. And of course, it's ridiculous. The, the idea that Christ would die for people that he knows is going to go to go for hell is, is not only ridiculous, it's unjust. For the sins are paid for in hell, and then they're paid for again by Christ, which doesn't make any sense. By logical implication, Arminianism denies that faith is a gift of God, merited through the death of Christ, and thus, for the typical evangelical, they believe that men are saved because of faith, not through faith, which is a gift of God received in regeneration. And I don't have the book anymore. I used to have it. Billy Graham put out a book, I believe in the 60s or 70s, called The New Birth. And Billy Graham teaches the typical Arminian view that you make yourself born again by choosing Christ. Once you believe, God respects that faith, God respects your belief, and then makes you born again. Well, the biblical view is the opposite. The biblical view is that you're dead in trespasses and sins, and God makes you born again by the power of the Holy Spirit based on union with Christ in his death and resurrection, and that enables you to perceive the gospel and believe and repent. Their exaltation of the human will and the doctrine of salvation, which is a form of humanism, has led them to argue, and this is what's really bizarre, that although God is totally sovereign over the whole created order, he has voluntarily limited his own sovereign power over mankind so that men can have a truly free, unencumbered will. Such a view is absurd and radically unscriptural. For God by nature is sovereign, and God cannot deny himself by limiting or changing his own nature. It's simply impossible. But that's what they teach. They exalt the human will. Now, does man have a free will? It depends on how you define free will. Men have, men have a free will, but men always follow their heart. If the heart is born evil, then the, the, the will is always going to follow that evil nature, and that's why men don't have the ability to choose Christ of their own free will. Nobody's putting a gun to their head. Nobody's forcing them to reject Christ, but they reject Christ because they hate God, and they're covenant breakers from birth. So yes, they have a free will, but that free will follows a wicked heart. But when you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and the nature of your heart is changed in a Godward direction where you now love God, then of course you're going to choose Christ. The Arminian Gospel teaches by logical implication that the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ, the divine human mediator, are very disappointed with their own plan of salvation. They believe that God really desires to save every sinful, every single human being, every single fallen and guilty human being who ever existed or will exist. But he is unable to achieve his plan or desire. He really wants this, but he can't get it done. And, the, and, and that raises the question, why? Well, according to the Armenian, it's because sinful fallen men will not let him. God is thwarted by finite sinners because their will is more important and more powerful than God's plan. But what does the Bible say? What does Jesus Christ, the Son of God, say? Well, John 6, 39, 
37, 39, 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing. In other words, not one will be lost, but should raise it up at the last day. No one could come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So why do some people come and some people don't? The Father. And I will raise him up in the last day. Why does Jesus keep repeating this, I will raise him up in the last day? Because that indicates salvation in the fullest sense of the term. It means not only are you going to, are you going to believe and you're going to be saved, it means that you're going to be raised with a glorified body at the second coming of Christ and have eternal life with a new glorified body in heaven. It means you cannot be lost. It means God has not only saved you, but he's preserved you, and now he's glorified you. The Arminian version of the gospel not, not only perverts the purpose and source of faith, the sovereignty of God, the biblical particular nature of God's love toward the elect, but also removes Christ's redemptive work as the foundation, source, or ground of the application of that redemption. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's say you have some children. You have a little daughter. Let's say she's four years old. You love your daughter, don't you? Well, would you allow your daughter to drown in the swimming pool if you could prevent it? Well, to say that God loves that person who's going to go to hell and God doesn't stop it, what kind of love is that? That's not biblical love. The Bible teaches that regeneration, repentance, and saving faith are the result of of union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And read Romans chapter 6. It's especially clear in Romans chapter 6. It's clear in Ephesians 1 and 2 and other passages. But the Arminian and modern evangelicals place regeneration after faith as God's response to man's faith in Christ. And this, of course, perverts their doctrine of election. Election means that God loved certain people beforehand, before the world was even created, and chose them in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world. To be holy and in him. And that those persons will certainly, absolutely certainly, have true saving faith and be saved. They don't teach that. They reject Romans 9. They reject Ephesians 1 and 2. They teach that God looks down the corridors of time. He sees who's going to have faith in Christ and who, out of their own free will. And God chooses those people totally unscriptural, has no basis in scripture whatsoever. Well, this doctrine, this leads us to the heretical modern evangelical notion that man regenerates himself, or more precisely allows God to regenerate him by, quote, making a decision for Christ. And this is called by, theolo by Reformed theologians, decisional regeneration. This, is taught by, this was taught by Billy Graham, Billy Graham's son, most modern event, most of the big modern evangelicals, you basically allow God to regenerate you by your act of the will. This is what Billy Graham taught in his book in the New Birth. But such teaching, beloved, is totally unscriptural. The Bible teaches us that only the Holy Spirit can regenerate a person and enable him to believe in the gospel. John three eight, Jesus said. The wind blows where it wishes, and the wind, of course, is the Holy Spirit, if you read the context of the passage, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell it where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
And then, of course, John uh, seventeen eight, where Jesus refuses to play for the pray for the world, but he only plays for those whom Thou hast given me, who God has given him, the elect. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, and this is John one thirteen, were born, not of blood, not because you're a Jew, not because your Christian parent, your parents are Christians, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So are we born again because of the will of man, which is what Billy Graham taught and what most evangelicals have been taught? And the the Apostle John says, no. has nothing to do with it. And the reason is, is because you're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5 or whatever it is. And if you're dead in trespasses and sins, you can't believe unless God enables you to believe. In the modern evangelical system, grace is no longer the unmerited favor of God to those who deserve to perish, but the aid of God so that man can save himself through an act of the will. We call that syncretism. Evangelicals would rather pervert the doctrine of regeneration than give up their concept of free will and admit the sovereignty of God in election. Now, once again, we're not saved against our will. And yes, it's your will who believes in Christ, but you believe in Christ because God changes your heart in regeneration, enabling your will to believe and to choose Christ. The absurd notion that man regenerates himself or that God or that man allows God to regenerate him by an act of the will has led to a complete perversion of the gospel message. If as many evangelicals teach, regeneration is not solely a work of God upon the human heart. And if God can only regenerate those who first exercise their free will in favor of Christ, then faith cannot be viewed as a gift of God. In the modern evangelical scheme, a man's faith permits God to save him. And once again, you're saved because of your faith, not through faith as a gift of God, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, where it says explicitly that faith is a gift. And I didn't take the time to look it up, but repentance is called a gift as well in the book of Acts and other places. Why do, you, why do you have faith? Why do you repent? God enables you to, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, in the, in the modern evangelical scheme, faith is meritorious. Men are not saved through faith, which is a gift of God, but because of their faith. A person's decision for Christ is the key which unlocks the chain that binds God. Faith and repentance do not flow from a regenerated heart, but are totally self-produced. Or they would say, well, it's your, but it, it, you may have some help from God. In fact, they would look at it this way. You go, you go see, let's say you go see Billy Graham preach. And you have Bill here and Bob here, and they both hear Billy Graham. The Holy Spirit works on both Bill and Bob and encourages them to repent. But Bob repents and Bill does not. So in their scheme, because it was an act of Bob's free will, Bob has something to boast of. He was more spiritually sensitive than Bill. He had more wisdom than Bill. But if they're both spiritually dead and cannot believe of their own free will, and God enables one to believe, who gets all the glory? God does. Jesus Christ does, who enables through his redemptive work to believe. A 
person's decision for Christ is the key that unlocks the chain that binds God. Faith and repentance are totally self-produced in their scheme. Man's decision is considered totally autonomous. God can attempt to influence man's decision, but ultimately has no power over it. In the modern evangelical system, man's choice has been exalted above all, even over the sovereignty of God. God is merely the great resource which man can tap if he wills. In such a perspective, man is sovereign, and God the resource and insurance agency serving and glorifying man, so that the whole world is turned upside down, and God is made man's servant and instrument. And if you don't believe me, listen to Joel Wallstein, Derek Price, uh, that woman preacher, I forgot her name again, uh, all these, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Joel Wallstein, and that's how they preach. God is man's resource to exalt man. God exists to exalt man and make man rich and have a better life and to feel better about himself. God is here for your self-esteem. Instead of God saves us so we can follow Christ and die to self daily to pick up our cross and serve Christ, God is here to serve man so we can have nicer houses and fancier cars and wear nicer clothes. Man has become his own God and Savior, and God's function is to act as the insurance agency that, so that man may prosper. And I watched a documentary. I forgot the guy's name, but it, this was the guy who was the pastor of Justin Bieber and all these basketball stars. And he was the guy who was having sex with an Italian model and uh, at least three different women in his own church. He was having sex with them while he was married to his wife, who was quite good-looking and he had no excuse, obviously. It's wicked. And... Um, their whole thing was, their whole, their whole message was, is basically God is here to make you rich. So you can drive a Porsche, you can have the best food and so forth, which is totally contrary to the message of Christ and the apostles, which is God, Christ came to save us so we could follow Christ, so that we would die daily. Now, will God bless people who obey his law and follow God's principles of work and economics, who work hard six days a week, who don't spend all their time in leisure and so forth? Yeah, God will bless you. But that's not why we're saved. We're saved to obey Christ and follow him. In modern exegetical methodology, excuse me, in modern evangelical methodology, people are often told to look to Christ for salvation and assurance. They're not told to do that, but to follow to trust in their decision for Christ. And I'll never forget, um, when I was first involved, and in, it was the, probably the Assemblies of God, it was the Charismatic Church, you'd walk to the front of the church, you'd make a decision for Christ, you'd ask him to come in your heart, you'd sign a card, you put a date on it, and then you were told, look back to your decision for Christ and never doubt your salvation, instead of focusing on trust in Christ. The ground of salvation is not Christ's sacrificial death and sinless life, but the personal choice of the autonomous man. When people express doubts about their salvation, they are instructed to look back at their decision for Christ. Do not doubt your salvation because you walked an aisle. You prayed a prayer. You signed a card. You made a decision for Christ. And such thinking has more in common with a magic formula than biblical Christianity. Man controls a helpless God by an act of the will. 
it is expressly declared that God cannot bless us in any way until we open the way for his action by an act of our own will. Everywhere and always, the initiative belongs to man. Everywhere and always, God's action is suspended upon man's will. But that only shows that our dependence must be in our trust, not in Christ. Christ cannot keep us in trust, but our trust can keep us in Christ. And that is why if you're an Arminian, you can never have assurance of salvation, because everything is dependent on your will, and they teach that men can and do fall away, that you can be justified one, you can be saved one minute and damned another. In such a system, the poor sinner is left looking at his belly button instead of Jesus Christ. If he is honest, he's left in a state of despair, because the object of his faith is his feeble, sinful will. If self-deceived, he may have assurance, but it is totally without foundation. See, when you trust in Christ, and you know that your regeneration and your faith is a gift from God that you receive due to union with Christ, Romans chapter 6 and so forth, then your faith and your assurance will not be shaken. Yeah, you may, you may fall into sin, you may have some doubts because you fall into sin, but you'll repent right away, and you depend solely on Christ. In modern evangelical theology, people are taught that Christ died on the cross for all men without exception. And they are also told that God's election of certain people to eternal life is based on his foreknowledge of who will believe in, in Christ. Since in the Arminian scheme, Christ's death did not actually secure the salvation of anyone, and since God can only choose those people who first chose Christ, the most important factor in man's salvation is man's choice. Now, do you need to believe in Christ? Absolutely. Do you need to choose Christ over the world? Absolutely. But the question is, why? Is it an autonomous act of the will, or is it an act of sovereign grace of God, the Holy Spirit, upon the human soul, based, rooted upon, founded upon the work of Christ, union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection? That's when a typical modern evangelical is asked why he has a title to eternal life. He does not speak of Christ doing and dying as a substitute for his people, or about God declaring sinners righteous on the basis of Christ's work, but rather will say, I know I am saved because I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. Or I know I am saved because I let Jesus come into my heart. Which has more in common with Romanism than it does with Protestantism. The gospel is reduced from the objective work of Christ, sovereignly bestowed by God upon the elect, to a sovereign man, letting Christ objectively dwell in their heart. God has to do what we require. And not surprisingly, this view leads to a pragmatic concept of salvation. What's in it for me? It's humanistic. What does God have to offer as against the world? God and Satan are reduced to bitters for man's favor, with man as sovereign, so that God is made into a tempter trying to bribe man into salvation with enticing offers and pleadings. Hey, if you, if you let Christ into your heart, God's going to make you rich. God's going to give you a better marriage. You're going to have whiter teeth, a better car. You're going to have self-esteem. And then you wonder why Joe Olstein and these kind of people are on Oprah Winfrey's show. Because it's not the gospel, it's a form of humanism. Unbelievers, the people of the world, like Oprah Winfrey, who's a Satanist, hate the gospel. 
the expressions, accept Christ as your personal Savior, and let Christ come into your heart are not found in Scripture and were never used by Christ, the apostles, or the evangelists. In Revelation 3.20, Christ said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This passage is sometimes used to justify the expression, let Christ come into your heart. The context of the passage, however, clearly indicates that Christ was speaking not to unbelievers, but to, to a backslidden church. Christ, therefore, is not saying, let me come into your heart, but hear and obey and reestablish proper fellowship. You've broken fellowship by your backslidings. Let's reestablish fellowship. Christ is coming into fellowship with us as saints. He is not standing at the door of the spiritually dead sinner asking him to exercise his unrenewed will. Another passage used to justify modern evangelical methods, just John 1.12. But as many as received him, to him he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Well, that, that raises the question, what does it mean to receive Christ? How does scripture define this? Well, if you study the Gospel of John where we find this, does one find Christ and the apostles inviting people to receive Jesus into their heart? In the Gospel of John, receiving Christ is synonymous with believing in Christ. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 5, 43, 46 to 47. So what does it mean to receive Christ in John, the Gospel of John? To believe in Christ's person, to believe in Christ's objective saving work, to trust in it, and to believe Christ's doctrine, his words, his testimony. That's what it means to receive Christ. Do you believe in what he did on the cross? Do you believe that he's a divine human mediator born of a Virgin Mary? Do you believe that he's the sinless son of God who died as a substitute on the cross? Do you believe that he rose from the dead literally on the third day? That's what it means to receive Christ. Not, hey Jesus, will you come into my heart? Which a good Roman Catholic, which a Hindu could even say. And that's why charismatics generally, sloppy evangelicals and charismatics, have no problem accepting Roman Catholics as Christians. Because they're both teaching a false gospel. They're both teaching a subjective gospel. Their own Catholic view is that you're regenerated by baptism, and then the Holy Spirit is within you, and you cooperate with that inward grace, and if you cooperate with the inward grace and you become good enough, then, you're, then you'll be declared just by God, because of your subjective righteousness. Well, that's the same thing the Pharisees taught, essentially. The only way to receive Christ is to believe in him. To receive Christ is to believe the words which he speaks and the spiritual testimony regarding him. Believing in Christ means trust in Christ's person, his character, his work, his words. One believes that Christ can carry out his promises. He came to save to the uttermost. Receiving Christ is not a formula in which man sovereignly controls the Lord over lords and the King of kings, but is a wholehearted trust in the divine human mediator, Jesus Christ. While in the Gospel of John, people are never exhorted to receive Christ as their personal Savior, the verb pistuo, to believe, occurs 98 times. That's just the Gospel of John, 98 times. 
and go get your concordance out and look up faith and believe and look at throughout the whole New Testament. It's everywhere. But show me where you're asked to accept Jesus into your heart. The only thing even remotely similar is the passage I noted in the book of Revelation, which refers to a backslidden church reestablishing fellowship with Christ and dining with him. And and evangelicalism, the Holy Spirit's emphasis should be evangelism. The Holy Spirit's emphasis should be our emphasis. There's nothing wrong with the phrase receive Christ as long as it is biblically defined and you go on just as it does in John's Gospel to define that. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in his person? He's the divine human mediator, born of the Virgin Mary, etc. He literally, fully God and fully man in one person. Two natures, not mixed, not separated. United in one person, the hypostatic union. Do you believe he lived a sinless, perfect life as the Lamb of God who never sinned? Do you believe that he fulfilled the covenant of works? Do you believe that he died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin? Do you believe that he was buried, that he uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was buried in the grave for three days, and then he rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to God victorious over sin? Do you believe that? Do you believe what the Bible says about him? The biblical passages which refer to the indwelling of Christ in the individual believer, are never used in the context of an evangelistic formula, but are always used in the context of Christian sanctification and assurance. Romans 8, 9 to 10, here's what Paul says. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Regarding verse 9, William G.T. Shedd, the great Southern theologian, says this, and he's a commentator too. He has denominated the Spirit of Christ because the exalted Christ imparts himself in and with the paraclete, John 14. That's the Holy Spirit. And because whoever has not the Spirit is not a member of Christ. End of quote. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul writes, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you, Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified, or the older translations, reprobate? 2 Corinthians 13.5, writing to people that were, you know, grossly violating the law. Charles Hodge says this, quote, Christ dwells in his people by his spirit. The presence of the Spirit is the presence of Christ. This is not a mere figurative expression, as when we say we have a friend in our heart, but a real truth. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is in the people of God collectively and individually. The ever-present source of a new kind of life. End of quote. And why is the Holy Spirit in this person and not in that person? Because Christ died for this person, and he didn't die for that person. Limited atonement, definite atonement. If Christ died for you, he will impart his spirit to you, and the spirit will change your heart and enable you to believe in Christ. Although the Bible teaches the indwelling of the spirit of Christ in his people, sinners are never instructed to invite Christ in. But to, and this is Galatians 2.19, believe in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not the works of the law. Inviting Jesus in sounds nice, but it is very different than believing in Christ. Given 
the sinful state of mankind. The pertinent question is not whether we accept Christ, but whether God accepts us. And how will God accept us? Well, he can't accept us based on our own righteousness, because we're all rotten, filthy sinners. None is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if we believe in Christ, we're clothed with his perfect righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. If we believe in Christ, all of our sin and guilt is imputed or reckoned to him on the cross, and his blood washes away the guilt of sin. It's blotted out. It's removed forever. It's expiated. And therefore, God's wrath is propitiated. This shift in modern evangelical preaching and evangelism from justification by faith alone to the terminology of inviting Jesus into the heart or accepting Jesus as a personal Savior has led many Protestants down the road toward Rome and the Christian existentialism of the charismatic movement. The fastest growing thing in Latin America, place in South America like Brazil, is not biblical Protestantism, but the charismatic movement. And the reason is, is well, A, the worship is very worldly and exciting, but it has much in common with Romanism. Because it's a subjective thing. You invite Jesus in, you have an experience. The Bible em emphasizes that Christ's work of redemption for his people is objective. It takes place outside of the sinner. When a person believes in Christ, he is declared righteous by God the Father in the heavenly court. This also takes place outside of the sinner. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the result of justification and not the cause of it. Thus, the terminology of inviting Christ into the heart really has nothing to do with justification. And how many evangelicals, I'll never forget... I was a uh, evangelist with Resurrection City in Berkeley, a street preacher, basically. He's handing out tracts and all that. And uh, they said, you know, you're, you seem to be pretty smart. Why don't you start writing tracts for us? So I started doing research. So I started studying doctrine. I got a book by B.B. Warfield, and I became a Calvinist. Of course, I was promptly fired. But uh, the, the issue with them, they don't care about doctrine. There's always been a tendency among evangelicals to ignore justification and emphasize the new birth. The big question in the 1970s, of course, we had, we had the, the Democratic president, uh, Billy Car uh, Jimmy Carter, a total heretic, a liberal. Are you born again? Remember that? Are you born again? People are often asked, have you been born again? Now, that question would be legitimate if evangelicals define the new birth biblically. But it would be the same as asking, has the Holy Spirit changed your heart, enabling you to repent and believe in Christ? Evangelicals, however, do not define the new birth biblically. Their question basically means, have you accepted Christ into your heart, and have, have you had a wonderful spiritual experience? The focus is not on the objective work of Christ, but on man's autonomous decision and the inward experience it produces. Once again, it's God's response to man's free will, which is a form, once again, of humanism. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not what justifies. The work of the Holy Spirit in man <coughs> is that of sanctification. Regeneration, which 
the Puritans called initial sanctification, and then sanctification. Although many evangelicals probably do not intend to confound justification with sanctification in their evangelism, their sloppy biblical terminology does not differentiate between an imputed righteousness and an infused righteousness. So once again, they have something in common with Roman Catholicism, and they've unwittingly rejected the Protestant Reformation in their teaching. Christ's objective work for his people is confused with his work in his people. This is the great era of Roman Catholicism. The ignorance of doctrine and use of unscriptural terminology by evangelicals has led many evangelical leaders and laymen to ask, what's so bad about the Roman Catholic Church? My Roman Catholic friends have accepted Christ and asked him to come into their heart. Aren't they Christians just like me? And the answer is, no, they're not. Because they believe in salvation by faith plus works which is a heresy. And if you add works to faith, you're not a Christian. You're a Pharisee. You're a good Pharisee. Read Galatians. The truth is not that Romanists are moving closer to biblical doctrine of salvation, but that evangelicals have been moving closer to Rome. It is true that a number of Roman Catholics have become charismatics and have adopted some of the modern evangelical slogans and terms, but they have not embraced the biblical doctrine of justification. Until they do, they have not yet accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sinful tendency is to forget the objective gospel and to move toward a man-centered subjectivism. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Matthew seven fifteen. Beware their doctrine will devour you. Doctrine is critical. It's important. And then this leads to a uh, very common thing in evangelical churches called the altar call. Modern evangelicals have not only perverted the gospel message, but have also developed a ritualized method of inviting sinners into their, in their church services, revival meetings, and evangelistic crusades. The ritual has been called the invitation system, or the altar call. In these services, people are told to come forward to receive Christ. Whatever the intent of the preacher may be, the audience which hears the invitation to come forward and walk down the aisle equates coming to the front of a church with coming to Jesus Christ. This ritual was never practiced in any church, either east or west, until 1830s, when it was invented by Charles Grandison Finney, a Pelagian heretic. He lived from 1792 to 1875 and was a complete and utter heretic. The altar call is unscriptural for a number of reasons. First, it introduces a man-made ritual into the gospel, into the public worship service. The Bible teaches that everything done in the public worship of Christ's church must have warrant from the word of God. In other words, you have to prove it from scripture. Genesis 4, 3-5, 2 Samuel 6, 3-7, 1 Kings 12, 32-33, 1 Chronicles 15, 13-14, uh, Jeremiah 7, 31, 19, 5, Matthew 15, 1-3, Colossians 2, 8, Colossians 2, 20-23, uh, Deuteronomy 4, 2, Deuteronomy uh, 12, I forget, around 35, 25, uh, whatever I command you, don't add to it, don't detract from it. We're not allowed to make up anything in the worship of God or in church practice. Second, coming to Christ is something a person does by believing in him. 
associating a physical act with becoming a Christian has led multitudes of people who do not have genuine faith and are not real Christians who regard themselves as saved because they went to the front of the church. They obeyed a religious ritual. The invitation system has been a disaster because thousands of people think they are saved when they are not and are then told that they are carnal Christians because their lives have not been changed at all. When uh, Charles Grandison Finney, uh, the big revivalist of the 1800s, uh, who had a great, great influence on modern evangelicalism, he's a terrible theologian, he said before he died, right before he died, he said, look, if I could preach again, I would preach nothing but holiness because my converts... Uh, have not led holy lives. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. You have to have faith in Christ, and your faith in Christ is a daily enduring thing. Yes, the moment you believe you're saved, that's not that's absolutely true. But you have to have faith every day, and you have to pick up your cross and follow Christ every day. Justification leads to sanctification. Faith is always connected to repentance and scripture. Here's what Riesinger writes, and he's a Southern Baptist back when they were still Calvinists. I, I, well, there's still some Calvinists today. To call sinners to the front of the church is not a divine command, but many times those who do not go forward are led to believe that they are not obeying God. This is a false psychological guilt, because no such thing has ever been commanded by God or practiced in the New Testament. On the other hand, those who do go forward are often commanded and are led to believe that they did something commendable, when in many cases they have only added to their religious deception. End of quote. And then third, the altar call introduces a mediator between the sinner and Jesus Christ. When sinners come to the front of the church to receive Christ, they are met by a minister or one of their, his associates, and they are told to pray a certain prayer. The idea that a person needs to physically come to the front of the church and speak with a minister to accept Jesus Christ is Romish to the core. And here's what Spurgeon says the great Baptist Calvinistic preacher from the 1800s. Quote, We must not come back by a rapid march to the old ways of altars and confessionals and have a Romish trumpery restored to a coarser form. If we, men think that, <coughs> if we make men think that conversation with ourselves or with our helpers is essential to their faith in Christ, we are taking a direct line for priestcraft in the gospel. The sinner and the Savior are to come together with none in between. End of quote. To teach even implicitly that it is essential that a sinner confer with a minister or receive a prayer from an elder to receive Christ is popish superstition and not true religion. Now, once you come to believe, what should you do? Well, obviously, you should be baptized with Trinitarian baptism and you should join yourself to a church. But that's not the same as an altar call. And we see in Acts, those who believed daily were added to the church daily. They became church members so they could have fellowship and friends, and they could have spiritual oversight by elders over them. Let's look at another thing before we run out of time. And here's the effect of dispensationalism on the gospel. And I'll just begin this. Not only has the Arminian heresy done incredible damage to much of modern evangelical preaching of the gospel, but so has the great era of dispensationalism, a doctrine invented in the 1900s by a man named John Nelson Darby, who was part of the Brethren movement. 
And this is where we get the pre-tribulation rapture and all these other errors that are totally accepted and popular today. This, his doctrine was greatly popularized by the Schofield, C.I. Schofield, the Schofield Reference Bible in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, incredibly popular among fundamentalists. So you had the mainline denomination shifting toward modernism and rejecting belief in the Bible and accepting secular humanism with religious terminology. And then you had fundamentalists accepting dispensationalism and then rejecting the moral law of God from the Old Testament and adopting all sorts of crazy doctrines. Most modern evangelicals do not understand the great importance of knowing and preaching the moral law, stated very clearly in the Old Testament, for an understanding of why the gospel is necessary. If you study the New Testament, the, the ethics of the New Testament, the, the New Testament doesn't give us a new law, it simply relates the law of Christ from the Old Testament. Paul is applying the Ten Commandments and the moral law from the Old Testament to New Testament believers. There is no new moral law. The only change in the New Testament is that if, you mar if you're married to an unbeliever, you become a Christian, your wife does not, or, otherwise, or the other way around, you're not allowed to get a divorce. unless If they want to leave, let them leave. But if they want to stay with you, and they're going to respect the fact that you're going to church every week and you're going to obey the Sabbath, that they want to respect that, and the fact that you're going to raise your kids, as your children as Christians, then you have to stay with them. You can't get a divorce. In the Old Testament, you were allowed to get rid of them. That's the only thing that's changed between the Old Testament ethics and the New Testament. And, of course, that's a positive law. You can't change a moral, natural law. You can only change a positive moral law. Now, justification is a legal forensic concept. It's the language of a courtroom. In order to understand it, one must have a biblical view of God's moral law. God's law reveals his nature and character and defines justice and righteousness. When Christ accomplished his sinless life and sacrificial death, uh, what he accomplished was the satisfaction of the penalty and the precept of the law, the moral law. Romans 3.21-22 and 10.3. Thus Christ's active and passive obedience is called the righteousness of God, Romans 3.21-22 and 10.3. The gift of righteousness, Romans 5.17-18. Or the righteousness of faith, Romans 4.13-9.30 and 10.6. Charles Hodge says that justification, quote, rests purely upon the state of the law and of the facts, and is impossible where there is not a perfect righteousness. It pronounces that the law is not relaxed, but fulfilled in its strictest sense, end of quote. <clears throat> Justification by Christ honors the law of God in every respect, because the law is not ignored, bypassed, or put away, but perfectly obeyed by Jesus Christ and perfectly satisfies as regards of the penalty by his sacrificial death on the cross. He endured the curse of the law, Galatians chapter 3, in our place. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But what happens to justification when the Ten Commandments and the moral law are considered as something negative, something intrinsically bad or harsh, and only for a past dispensation, that is for Israel only, which is what dispensationalists have been taught. Well, number one, the law is no longer preached. Dispensational theology has contributed to the perversion of the gospel in two major ways. First, it has radically changed the way in which the gospel is presented. The preaching of the law has been largely replaced with either a vague general reference to sin, 
admit you're a sinner, or with a hedonistic offer of the gospel. Now, the Protestant reformers and the Puritans preached the specifics of God's law to emphasize God's holiness, to emphasize God's hatred of sin, and to convict people of specific sins so that sinners would understand their condition and guilt and flee to Christ. There's an excellent book, I don't know if it's in print anymore, but it came out in the 70s, called The Gospel Authentic or Synthetic, where, uh, oh, I forget his name, Uh, a Baptist preacher, Reformed Baptist, uh, shows how Christ and the Apostles presented the Gospel in contrast to modern evangelicals. Look at how Christ presents the Gospel and uh, presents the Gospel in the Gospels. He teaches in such a way so that people understand that they've violated the law and they can't keep the law and therefore they need a Savior. Well, if you, re- you think the law is something bad, it's only for Israel, you're not going to do that, are you? Oh, that was Walter Chantry, that was his name. <clears throat> The Apostles, Paul said that by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. He pointed out that it was the law that convicted him of sin. I would not have known sin except through the law. Apart from the law, sin was dead, Romans 7, 7 to 8. The more a person understands God's specific requirements for him in thought, word, and deed, the more that person will see that his only hope is Christ's imputed righteousness and bloody death. <clears throat> but for those who regard the law as something negative, as something belonging to a former dispensation, it would be illogical to spend time expositing an abrogated law. Thus, much preaching and many tracts simply say, admit that you're a sinner. There is no conviction in such generalities. And nowadays, it's even worse. They don't even say that anymore in a lot of churches. Now Christ is simply presented as a way to have a better life. You can have your best life now, if you let Jesus into your heart. The law is not based on... Uh, if the law is not based on God's nature and character, but is arbitrarily imposed on different dispensations, why is there a need for divine satisfaction? If the moral law were subject to change or replacement, then it was futile for Christ to die if the law given to Moses has no permanently binding character. We're talking about the moral law. Where the law is denied, justification by faith is eventually denied. Because an antinomian religion has no need of a judicial act of God to affect salvation. Do you understand how important the law is to understanding the gospel and preaching the gospel? And then one more, and we'll, we better quit. Number two, the hedonistic presentation of the gospel. The unbiblical view of the law has contributed to a hedonistic presentation of the gospel. Hey, have your best life now. I have Cadillac faith. You only have Chevrolet faith. Apart from the law and the doctrine of justification, which Christ satisfies the just demands of the law against sinners, the gospel for many has become something which enables people to find prosperity and self-fulfillment. Christ is presented as a cosmic Santa Claus. Much contemporary evangelism is done in the atmosphere of a Christian rock concert, with all its accompanying beat and emotionalism. The music and the general excitement make the hearers feel absolutely at home in the evangelistic meeting. The presentation of the gospel is often accompanied with hedonistic promises, such as come to Christ, so that you can experience life with a capital L. You can experience life to the fullest. Be released from the past so you will be freely to do your own thing. At healing crusades, Christian rock concerts, prophecy conferences, Christian pop psychology seminars, charismatic entertainment television shows, etc., 
the candy-coated, hedonistic version of the gospel is tacked onto the whole proceedings so as to sanctify a whole evening's worth of theological nonsense and crass, mediocre entertainment. If I want to be entertained by music, I'll go listen to Jeff Beck or Jimi Hendrix or Miles Davis. Why should I go listen to some crappy evangelical pap? Accept Christ and have whiter teeth, a better, bigger car, a better house. Your problems will evaporate. You'll have your best life now. Your marriage will be great. Your sex life will be better. Christ is presented as a bail God who gives people bigger crops and happy livestock. One of the most popular teachings among megachurches, especially charismatic megachurches, is what is called the prosperity gospel. The content of the gospel, justification by faith alone, is ignored or presented as a sovereign act of autonomous man. Accept Jesus into your heart. But, if you study the sermons, the point of the incarnation is not so man can be saved, take up his cross, and follow Christ. That is, live a life of self-sacrifice, to be a servant of Christ, to die to self, to die to your own life, to live for Christ. But so God can save man and serve man with greater riches, self-esteem, and a prosperous life. Man can control God if he has faith and makes positive affirmations. The name it and claim it movement uh, of Kenneth Hagin, who stole it from another guy, and it was adopted by uh, Kenneth Copeland and uh, Joyce Myers and uh, Price, and all these people are teaching the same heresy, this prosperity gospel. Faith is a magic incantation. It's a magic formula. If you say it and believe it, God will give you what you want. In other words, Jesus came so you could be rich. Jesus came for hedonism and materialism. Now, does the Bible teach there will be materialist blessings if you obey the law of God habitually and you follow God's principles? Yeah, generally that's true. But Jesus came so we could serve God, not so we could be hedonists or materialists. The name and claim it movement of Kenneth Hagin and his stepchildren, such as Kenneth Copeland, Joel Olstein, Derek Prince, etc., essentially teaches that God exists to serve man as long as man can generate the proper autonomous faith and mindset. The power of positive thinking, which is purely psychological, it was invented by Norman Vincent Peale back in the 1930s. The gospel is turned into a humanistic form of self-worship. For this reason, people such as Joel Olstein are welcomed by Satanists, such as Oprah Winfrey. And that guy, I forgot his name. His name's not important, but he was the pastor over Justin Bieber and all these sports stars. And uh, was paid enormous amounts of money and was served with hors d'oeuvres and driven around in a limousine and was filthy rich and et cetera, et cetera. But he was a habitual adulterer and a false prophet and a liar. Um, these people are go on Oprah Winfrey and they go on Good Morning America and all these shows. Because, if, can you imagine uh, John MacArthur on one of those shows, t speaking the truth? Would those people be happy with that? Would Oprah be happy with him telling her you're going straight to hell if you don't repent of your Eastern mysticism? Of course not. Such preachers are loved by the world because their theology reflects the world. It's not the true gospel. So I hope this is helpful to you. 
The gospel is presented by John Calvin, by Martin Luther, by John Knox, by the Puritans, by the Reformers, by the Reformed creeds and confessions, is the true gospel. The gospel is presented by John Wesley and the Arminians. is a false gospel. And, of course, the modern charismatics is a false gospel. And it must be rejected. And John Owen, the great Puritan preacher, said, we do not shake hands with the, with the Arminians. We do not recognize them as Christians. We do not recognize them as brothers in Christ. For they're perverting the gospel of Christ. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. This is critical stuff. And you need to know that modern evangelicalism is in a seriously bad state, and that's why our country is so bad. People don't believe in the law of God anymore. They've become soft on sodomy, homosexual rights, and premarital sex because it's a hedonistic culture and they're, be, they're catering to the modern culture. The gospel is critical. It's one of the pillars of modern Christianity, a biblical Christianity, I should say, along with biblical worship. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your dear son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, born of a virgin, around 4 or 5 B.C. Truly God, fully God, fully man in one person. That he lived a perfect sinless life, fulfilling the covenant of works and the moral law in exhaustive detail for us. That his righteousness is reckoned and imputed to us. That our sins or guilt are imputed to him on the cross. That he expiates, removes our sin. And that he propitiates your wrath against us and therefore reconciles us to you. And we are adopted into your own family because of Christ. And we possess the Holy Spirit due to the work of Christ and get to follow you, Lord. Help us to worship your Son, to recognize him for what he is, and to obey him as faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen.